final instructions always seem to have a special significance. Today, Pastor Tom Keller begins a study of the instructions Jesus has for his disciples at the Last Supper. That's next on Study the Word. invited to join us for the next 30 minutes for study the word pastor tom keller is our teacher and we're online at ccleb.com pastor tom is currently in the book of john and today we start chapter 13 this begins the apostle john's record of the events in the upper room here jesus has his last passover meal with his disciples just before his crucifixion he has some important instructions for them and for us here's pastor tom Hey, we are in the book of John, chapter 13. John chapter 13. Overview, we are now in Jesus' last week, the last week of his life here on earth. Last week, chapter 12, was the Saturday before Jesus' final Saturday, a week in between. John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. And on that day, Jesus was anointed with perfume. And the very next Saturday, and the very next day, Sunday, was Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. We read about that in verses 12 of chapter 12. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. And John's postscript on uh, Jesus' three years of performing literally thousands, not hundreds of thousands, thousands of miraculous healings and deliverances is this in verse 37. After three years, John says, but despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. Incredible. And today's lesson takes place in the upper room, and chapter 13 takes place on a Thursday. So chapter 12 began with Palm Sunday, and today's chapter, chapter 13, begins on Thursday. So what happened on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of that week. Well, although John doesn't record any of that, the other gospel writers do to the great most extent. On Monday, we know from Matthew that Jesus went to the temple and rearranged some furniture. Matthew 21, 12, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. So that was Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. In Matthew 21, we read about this. In fact, Matthew devotes nearly four full chapters to Tuesday. This is when Jesus took on the, relig the teachers of religious law, the Pharisees, delivering his scathing seven woes discourse in Matthew 23, just a quick snapshot of that, 23, 25, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders in the temple, picture Jerusalem flooded with people. 
the Temple Mount flooded with people. And Jesus is saying this to the elite of the elite. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. He didn't work too hard to make friends of these people. That was Tuesday. Now concerning Wednesday, we don't know much about Wednesday. None of the gospel writers address Wednesday specifically. It is commonly understood because of that silence that Jesus spent Wednesday in Bethany with his closest companions, maybe, probably, at the house of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But we don't know for certain. Many commentators postulate that during this day away from the crowds is when Judas made his deal with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. And Thursday is where we find ourselves today. Jesus celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. Now, a question that needs to be answered. The day Passover occurs on this year, it was on a Saturday, not a Thursday. But Jesus died at 3 p.m. on Friday, John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. It was a day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath, Saturday, because it was the Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering their legs to be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the question is, why did Jesus and his disciples celebrate Passover one day early? Well, rabbis had disciples, still do today. They have disciples who were young, capable men in training to become rabbis themselves. And as a part of that training, one day prior to Passover each year, the rabbis would instruct their students on how to conduct the Passover service. Now, some give other explanations as well. They could be. We don't know that definitively. But from my vantage point, because this new covenant Passover borrowed so extensively from the usual Jewish Passover, Jesus was instructing his disciples on this new a form of Passover. So let's look a bit deeper at this chapter. John 13, verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he, Jesus, got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now this account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet is recorded only in the Gospel of John by John. Now remember, this would have been an extremely confusing time and event for the disciples. 
the excitement of Jesus' grand entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday must have reinvigorated the disciples' hopes of Jesus finally assuming his rightful title as king. After all, remember what happened in John chapter 12, verse 12. That next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on him, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. See, this was a first. They proclaimed Jesus as king prior to this. But all of those times, Jesus refused that title. Here, for the very first time, he accepted that title as king when the people could proclaim him as king. The disciples picked up on that. This was the beginning. They thought of his reign as king. Finally, they would also get their high-ranking positions next to Jesus because that's what they were looking for. We spent three years with you, Jesus, and, and one account says, what are we going to get out of this? And this is what they've been waiting for, him taking his title. But adding to that confusion, after that tremendously encouraging Palm Sunday event, Jesus kind of goes in a completely different direction and says this to the disciples in verse 27. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? I think they were thinking this hour of being king. What do you mean? Father, save me from being king? But this is the very reason I came. Later that same uh, chapter, verse 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Confusing. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. And I would imagine that as Jesus washed his disciples' feet, that Jesus would have been uncharacteristically quiet, somber, maybe even pale, maybe even trembling. Remember, in just a few hours, Jesus is going to say this. In Matthew 26, he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Wouldn't you think that Jesus was already starting to experience this horrible, crushing dread of what was only hours away from taking place. And I imagine that this last meal with his disciples was bittersweet. Jesus loved them so much and longed on one level to remain with them, and yet on the other level, as verse 1 says, his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. Think about what a joy-filled prospect that would have been for Jesus to be thinking, I can go back to my Father. You know, we think of going to heaven and what that would look like, but it's unknown to us. We, through a glass darkly, little visions or thoughts of what that might feel like. He knew what that was like. He spent from eternity with his Father. So the thought of going back, it was like a homecoming. I mean, it was like he knew exactly what that would look like and yet how he loved his disciples. The devil had already enticed Judas to betray Jesus. And with that act, the dominoes now begin to fall one after the other to the end of this book. And verse 3 is so profound. Listen to these words. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he'd come from God, 
and would return to God. It says that Jesus knew that his father had given him authority over everything. King James says, quote, had given all things into his hands. And that included giving Jesus the choice, the choice to either give his life on the cross or not give his life on the cross. We read of that in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus speaking, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again for this is what my father has commanded. So all of what is about to transpire over this next week, Jesus could have avoided. He could have said no to. Why did he choose, choose to go through it? Because of his love for you. It's been said if you were the only person that ever lived, Jesus still would have gone to the cross to save you. And even in light of that thought, think of this thought. When Jesus hung on the cross in a way that only God could, listen carefully, in a way that only God could, he thought about no one but you as he suffered on that cross. You say, but there are seven billion people. He could think of every single one of those people singularly and only that person. You say, I wasn't born yet. God knew you before you were created, formed in your mother's womb. He thought about you. So listen, when you see those pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross, don't separate yourself from that. Don't say, I'm I'm removed from that by 2,000 years. No, you're not. You were in his heart and in his mind. And when he suffered and died, he knew it was for you personally and individually. John 13, verse 4 to 5. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. King James says he rises up from supper. So apparently this takes place either during supper or immediately after they were finished eating. Paraphrasing the pulpit commentary, it says, quote, on this occasion, the highest conception of Jesus' divine personality, origin, and destiny was blended in with the deepest descent of the Lord's entire humanity down to the level of weakness and servitude. They say the greatest manifestation of God was in the revelation of the exceeding limits, the infinite depth to which his love could display to man. It ends by saying, our Lord took on the role of the lowest servant to whom all the universe had been entrusted, the one who had come from God and was going back to God. Think about it. Lord of Lord, King of Kings, taking on the role of a slave. Blaise Pascal, a famous mathematician, philosopher, who lived in the 1600s, said this. Listen closely. I do not admire the extreme of one virtue in a man unless you first show me at the same time the extremity of the opposite virtue. One's greatness is not by being at an extremity, but by being simultaneously at two extremities and filling in all the space between. How can you get more extreme? (laughs) than the creator of all of universe, space, and time, that continuum all the way to that end, 
all the way to serving as a slave, his creation. (laughs) Can there be anything more extreme than that? And he fills in all the space between. John 13, verse 3, Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he'd come from God and would return to God. Mark 10, 45, for even the, Jesus speaking, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 5, speaking of servant, servant attitude, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So I want you to picture this scene of Peter being confronted with Jesus, which is upcoming, on washing, Jesus wanting to wash Peter's feet. So I picture the scene, I picture Peter, impetuous, foot in the mouth, Peter, standing over by the wall, watching as all the other disciples are having their feet washed, refusing to come forward, incensed, red in the face, angry, fuming, because the idea that they would allow their master to bow before them, how could you? And then I picture as Jesus finishes the last of the 11, having washed their feet, they all as a group then turn and look at Peter, who's against the wall, not moving, fuming. And Jesus goes over to Peter and he says this in verse 6. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Please don't miss the strength of Peter's response. Jesus says, Peter, I want to wash your feet. And Peter explodes, you will never wash my feet. In Greek, it bears this out, never is umai, omei, And it means a strong, uh, a double negative, strengthening the denial. It's not at all, by no means, never, in no case. It's to speak technically and deny simply, categorically, and directly. So Peter's refusal is strong. But if you think about it, if you say no to a request that God makes of you, ultimately, ultimately, in the end, Does it really matter how strong you say no to him? As an example, let's say that someone is being witnessed to, and they say, I will never accept Christ as my Savior. Well, in the end, is that really any different than another person who says, well, maybe I will tomorrow, but never does. In the end, it's hell, the destiny of both of them, It's just like if God is telling you to give something up, some habit, some sin, some illicit affair. Maybe you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Does it really matter if you respond to his promptings by saying never? Or if you just say, ah, maybe tomorrow. Or if you just simply choose to ignore it. The result 
is the same. Some of you here today know that God is telling you to do something or to stop doing something, and you think that to give God a soft answer, no, or not to answer at all and just ignore God's promptings, that somehow that's more acceptable than a defiant never. It is not. It's no different. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. To not obey is to disobey. No matter how you parse your words, to delay is to disobey. But to impetuous Peter's credit, he turns on a dime. Listen, verse 8 and 9. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. We see here he turns on a dime, but he turns on a dime after supper again, doesn't he? I will never deny you, even if all the others do. And what happens? He turns on a dime, and three times he denies him. Peter was impetuous. Collins defines the word impetuous as one marked by impulsive passion. That fits him, doesn't it? One marked by impulsive passion. Note Peter's extreme swing here from you will never wash my feet, wanting Jesus not to wash anything, now suddenly to wanting Jesus to wash everything. And Jesus is so gentle, so kind here, Jesus could have chided Peter for his insolence, his refusal to get with the program, but he doesn't. If it were me, if it would have been me, I know what I would have said. Peter, again, really? Peter, again? Must you always be the guy that fights me, argues? Really, Peter, again? But Jesus didn't say that. Instead, he lovingly takes on the time to explain. Verse 10, Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not, does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. Now, many opinions can be found regarding what Jesus intends here. The one that I personally like is that Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you are already clean because of the words I have shared with you. We find that in John 15, verse 3, where Jesus said this, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Peter, in other words, you are already pure, you are already clean, but life continues to happen. We continue to miss the mark. We continue to sin. In other words, Peter, and to us, positionally, we are clean, but we continue on in our struggle against sin. I think Hebrews speaks to this dichotomy of the flesh and the spirit. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, For by that one offering, he, Jesus, forever made perfect those who are being made holy. So what he says is positionally, because of what Jesus did, his offering, you are forever perfect, positionally. And yet he says, at the same time, you're being made holy. Someone who's perfect doesn't need to be made holy. You're already holy. But this shows the difference between positional truth. He sees us as perfected in Christ. 
At the same time, he's sanctifying us. He's cleaning us up. So this is that idea that you are already pure, positionally. But in reality, sin happens. Thanks for joining us today for Study the Word with Pastor Tom Keller. Hear these studies from the Gospel of John again at cclebe.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. If you'd rather have a CD copy, call 717-273-5633. If you find these studies helpful to your walk with Christ, we'd like to know. It'd be so encouraging to Pastor Tom and all of us at Study the Word. Give us a call at 717-273-5633 or write to Study the Word, 740 Willow Street, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, 17046. You can also email us through the website at cclebe.com. Study the Word is made possible through the support of our listeners. Large or small, your gifts help to make these programs possible on stations all across the nation. So thank you for standing with us with either a one-time gift or ongoing monthly support. You can give online at cclebe.com or call 717-273-5633. We hope you'll visit us sometime here at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. For our service times and more information, go online to ccleb.com. Be sure to introduce yourself after service as a radio listener. That would put a smile on our face. You can also watch our live stream there at ccleb.com or on our YouTube channel at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. Study the Word with Pastor Tom Keller is brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. May God richly bless you as you study the Word. Come back next time when we'll pick up where we left off in John's Gospel as we continue to study the Word. 